and welcome to a very special Scotswahey podcast in collaboration with the Edinburgh International Book Festival and Publishing Scotland. My name is Alistair Braidwood and I had the pleasure of talking to eight representatives from a variety of publishers for the Scottish Publishers Showcase. In a moment, you'll find out just who and all about what they do. But first of all, I spoke to the director of the Edinburgh Book Festival, Nick Barley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest Scots We Hay podcast. And this time round, we're going to be talking about Edinburgh International Book Festival's Scottish Publishers Showcase. And I'm delighted to be joined by the director of the book festival, Nick Barley. Hello, Nick. Hi, Alistair. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Um, let's start with a question about the showcase itself. Why did you decide to put it on? Well, the first thing was that uh, the, the book festival over the last couple of years has been smaller than it's been in previous years. And because of that, we haven't been able to support the work of Scottish publishers in the way that we would normally like to. And whilst we know that publishing as a whole has had a, a reasonably okay time of it during the, the lockdown, you know, more people have been reading books and so on, we're aware that some publishers have struggled. And so we wanted to do everything we could as a festival to shine a light on the great work that's going on across the Scottish publishing scene from the biggest players who get international attention right through to the smaller players like Cranach and Publishing, publishing, uh, publishing Books out of Lewis, just to make sure that everyone's aware of the incredible wealth of activity going on in this country. It's part of a wider programme called The Business of Books. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, The Business of Books came about a few years ago from our realisation that the book festival, whilst it's mainly an organisation, an event which is for authors to speak to the public, we realised that more and more people were coming to the book festival who are working in publishing, editors, agents, publishers and authors themselves, and who would ha have these incredible conversations behind the scenes, uh, off stage, backstage, book deals were being done, ideas were being thrown around, incredible serendipitous encounters between a, a, an agent and an author. We realised just what a role we play as, as a hub of activity in Scotland for publishing. So we thought we'd try out bringing people together in a slightly more formal way. Not like a book fair, not, not with 15 minute meetings of agents and publishers or whatever, but just a slightly more formal approach. And, and over the years, we've built this idea of the business of books where people come along and they can have conversations about all sorts of aspects of what it is to be a publisher, learn their trade, improve their work, increase their networking, and basically be as good as they can be at their jobs. And it's, it's proved to be incredibly successful with publishers. It's really interesting as well. I think that often the part that writers don't know is how to get their books into the hands of publishers. It's something that I'm often asked. And I think by having this at a festival rather than a book fair, as you say, is a way that people who might be there anyway attending to see other writers can suddenly get answers to those questions. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the amazing things that happened a few years ago was uh, the, the Scottish crime writer Willie McIlvanny wrote to me, I think it was 2011, it was in my second year as director of the book festival and he said, Nick, you may not know this, but all of my books are out of print and I'm going to die soon. It was in this spindly handwriting, beautiful. And he said, you know, please would you do me the honour of having one last crack at the whip and give me a, a, a place in your main theatre. And I did. And again, and I, had, I was thrilled that the event sold out. Yeah. But in the audience, 
was the publisher from Canongate. And he didn't realize that Willie McIlvany's books were out of print. And he came out of that event and he dashed over to the author's year where he saw William McIlvany's agent. And he said, I've got to get Willie McIlvany's books back into print right now. Can we do it? And as a result of that event and that conversation, the following year, Willie McIlvany's backlist was brought back into print. And, and you know, sadly, Willie died a few years later, but he, he died knowing that his legacy was intact. And that's an example of the kind of things that happen at book festivals. Yeah. Unexpected. You can't plan them. So this business of books project is a way of just helping just to kind of create the conditions where those conversations can happen a bit more easily. And as you say, authors can get books into the hands of publishers. They know publishers will be around and are interested and are listening. And it's, it's a wonderful experience for everyone. That a place where those conversations that people maybe don't even realise need to be had, can they can discover that that's the place to have them. Yeah, and uh, let's be honest, uh, heaven forbid that we should uh, admit this, authors like a drink, publishers like a drink, and quite often these conversations take place late at night over a glass of beer or a glass of wine. And it's really important. That's how business gets done in, in publishing. So here we are at the festival welcoming anybody who'd like to be a writer, anybody who's already a writer but hasn't got, quite got the right book deal, but also somebody who wants to be an editor, a publisher. This is a place for learning the trade as well. And the showcase, um, I believe, is in conjunction with Publishing Scotland. How important is the work uh, that they do? It's absolutely vital. I and mean, Publishing Scotland, uh, for many years, has been a really crucial organisation representing the work of Scotland's publishers. You know, uh, it has to be said that Scot many of Scotland's publishers are very small operations. Uh, they're passion projects published by maybe one or two people, often in a very, very ad hoc way. And in order to get books available to people beyond Hadrian's Wall, not only in the UK, but internationally, requires the kind of resources that many publishers simply don't have. And Publishing Scotland's work in, in promoting books and publishing internationally, taking publishers to the Frankfurt Book Fair, the London Book Fair, for example, arranging for, for the sales of rights so that books can get translated into other languages and sold. These are part, this is part of the publishing world is really difficult to make happen when you're a small publisher. And it's thanks to Publishing Scotland that we've got such a vibrant publishing community today. What strikes me looking at the publishers involved is the range and breadth and variety, not only of what they're covering, but of where they are in the country. I mean, it's, it's quite astonishing that every single park seems to be represented. Um, has that changed a lot since you were director of the book festival? Yeah, it has actually. It's a really good point. Uh, I, until you mentioned it, I hadn't thought of that, but it, it's true. I mean, I'm, I'd mentioned Cranachan being based in Lewis, and that's we're so thrilled that they're making a go of it from Lewis, but also Sandstone Press, who are based uh, in Inverness. Uh, they've really had a good time of things over recent years. One of their authors was the winner of the International Booker Prize you know, the, for books in translation. And that's been a huge boost for Scottish publishing to, to get, a, to get a, a book translated from Arabic into English by a publisher based in Inverness. It's a really, really wonderful uh, demonstration of how Scottish publishing is international in its ambition. Uh, and it can do that, not necessarily just from a central belt, but it can, it can happen wherever people need to be in Scotland. Well, Nick, thanks so much for taking time to have a chat with me today. I can't wait to talk to the publishers, but it's been a delight to chat to yourself. Many thanks. Thanks very much, and thanks for all you're doing. 
I'm joined now by Chani McBain, the Commercial Director from Floris Books. Hello, Chani. Hello, Alistair. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, so first of all, what can you tell us about Floris Books? Well, Floris Books is an independent Scottish publisher. We are based here in Edinburgh. We are former Scottish Publisher of the Year. We're the home of some award-winning fiction and authors, and we have a growing international reach, particularly in North America, where we're working with a distributor called Consortium. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so first of all, how long have you been going and what is the, the history of Floris? Floris is now in its 45th year um, and it started as two people at a kitchen table and they were publishing religious books. We are now a thriving staff of 16 and in I think the, the biggest turning point in Floris's history is when we took over the Kelpies list of classic children's uh, fiction from Scotland. So we took over that from um, fellow Scottish publisher Canongate back in 2002. Uh, that included books by Molly Hunter and Kathleen Fiddler, really classic. Um, and since then, we've just been working on our Scottish list and growing the Kelpies. And that's probably what we're best known for in Scotland. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Kelpies? That's really interesting. I, it was when you when that was taken over was it a kind of regular seller you knew that this was going to be something that would sell yeah so Canagate had been publishing kelpies for quite some years uh, and they were all brilliant classic books and when we took them over we decided to add new voices into that contemporary voices and we started off with the middle grade which is what the kelpies originally were and since then, we have introduced um, picture books, picture kelpies, board books, wee kelpies, illustrated chapter books, which are young kelpies. Uh, and we've just got a whole range now for all Scottish children and Scottish children's books, everything you could want. Uh, that's fascinating. It's an area I think that people often don't think to discuss. Children's is a massive part of what we do. So as well as um, Kelpies, which is our Scottish children's books, we also do international uh, children's picture books. So we are the home of some European heritage brands. So we publish Elsa Besco, who is known as sort of the, the Beatrix Potter of Sweden. Um, mm. And uh, another fabulous illustrator called Sibylla von Olfers, who was a German illustrator working in the Art Nouveau period. And they are both brands that we are reinvigorating uh, in, we have been the last couple of years um, and reintroducing them to the market. They've already always had really passionate fans and uh, now we're getting to introduce them to new readers, very exciting. So we've got those books and we are also doing lots of contemporary international children's books, uh, picture books. We do those, um, publish them both in translation and we also originate books. And most of those are selling in North America. That's our biggest market. We 
have recently done a picture book called The Night Walk by Marie Dorlens, which is getting stellar reviews in America. It's very exciting. And you mentioned that um, you, you, you've moved into the North American market. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you did that? Absolutely. So we started working with a new distributor who are called Consortium back in 2019. And they are fabulous. They have um, excellent reach into lots of uh, bookstores. They have a great um, rep force who work with indies all over the country. We also have a great um, PR and marketing team uh, that we're working with, Myrick Marketing. And it's just so opened up so many doors in terms of the kind of books that we can publish um, and that people are really enjoying. It's It's been it's been a lot of hard work, yeah. uh, but it's been <laughs> incredibly rewarding. It's such an interesting thing to think about publishers breaking America in the same way that bands go and break America and then you can actually <laughs> get your books out there. Um, can you, well, what challenges do you face uh, in publishing uh, today? Because I guess things are constantly changing. Absolutely. I mean, cannot ignore the, the impact that the pandemic has had that's being felt continually uh, and that's really been impacting all parts of the publishing ecosystem but thankfully um, particularly with our authors our bookseller friends our festival friends um, all of these people who've been incredibly creative in reaching out to readers over the past few well coming back with force this is very exciting um, but I would say probably the biggest challenge that Floris has and that publishing as an industry has is ensuring that our books, our creatives and our staff are as inclusive and as diverse as we can be. And that for us, that we're really reflective of modern Scotland. That's something that you will see discussed a lot in the children's publishing industry we all know there's so much more we need to do in order for all children to see themselves in our books. Uh, that diverse creatives, are the, their voices are being heard and that the publishing industry itself uh, is becoming, needs to become more inclusive. That's something that we are keenly aware we have a long way to go on, um, but it's something that we're putting at the heart of what we are doing. We're actively seeking talented creatives from diverse backgrounds. And we're really trying to ensure that all of our originated books are as inclusive as possible. So can you talk about uh, maybe some of those books, maybe give us an example of three current or future titles that you're excited about? Absolutely. So it's really hard to choose three. So what <laughs> I did <laughs> was I chose, um, one that's just come out, one that's almost coming out, and then one that you have a little bit of time to wait for. So the one that has just come out is Velva, the Osmus Viking and the Voyage of Deadly Doom, which is a hilarious illustrated chapter book by David McPhail and Richard Morgan. Velva, the character, um, 
She was first introduced in the Thorfinn the Nicest Viking series. She is a small Viking warrior with a big attitude and her attitude could just not could just not be contained in one series. She needed her own series. So this is the first book. Uh, the next one's out next year. It's fiercely funny, brilliantly adventurous, and a little bit rude, which I think is why my six-year-old really loves it. But <laughs> we've been reading that one at bedtime. Then one that's coming quite soon, so October, is the amazing illustrated Atlas of Scotland. So this is coming on the back of an amazing animal atlas of Scotland, which we published last year, it's been incredibly successful. So in October, you're getting an atlas of the whole of Scotland. Um, it covers uh, fa fabulous facts about people and places and geography, history. Uh, it's also written by David McPhail, actually, and the illustrations are by Anders Frang. He is an incre incredibly talented illustrator. Um, my favourite part of the forthcoming book is the illustrations of cows and horses, which sounds really odd, but if you've never seen a cow looking haughty, then you are going to in this book. They are just so brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. Have to be seen to be believed. <laughs> so that's two. Um, our, my third exciting one, you have to wait till February, but it'll be so worth it. Uh, the Sky Beneath the Stone, which is an astonishing middle grade uh, from a debut author called Alex Malarkey. It is about Al uh, Ivy North, who is a 13 year old adventurer who's afraid to go outside. But she has to go into this enchanted kingdom called Underfell to rescue her brother. And Underfell is like the Lake District, but much more dangerous it's a book that we just couldn't wait to publish Alex is her writing is captivating her world building is immersive and just wait till you see the cover reveal totally out of this world that sounds amazing I have to say and all three sound amazing and I do love the fact that you've got your own focus group at home to go through uh, children's books that's terrific <laughs> Well, Charlie, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, not at all. I'm thrilled to chat to you and uh, to be talking a little bit about Forest. I'm joined now by Nicola Ramsey from Edinburgh University Press. Hello, Nicola. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, first of all, can you tell us a bit about Edinburgh University Press? Sure, okay, so we are um, an academic publisher of both books and journals. Um, we're a team of 40 people now, and we're publishing around 250 books and 50 journals each year um, for the academic market. So most of our sales are to university libraries, um, but we do also reach an individual readership through our textbooks for students and a small number of crossover academic trade titles. Um, we're the third largest university University Press in the UK and we're the only University Press in Scotland. That's really interesting, I didn't know that. Um, so how long have you been going? What's the history of the EUP? 
Right. Well, um, we are, we believe, 72 this year. Um, the, the, the start date is a little fuzzy, um, but <laughs> the generally held view is that we were founded in 1949 uh, by a guy called Archie Turnbull as a department of the University of Edinburgh. Um, and we published then a real kind of eclectic mix of academic books that kind of represented the full gamut of subjects covered by the University of Edinburgh. So we could very genuinely say at that stage that we've published on everything from astronomy to zoology. Um, we have in the past had uh, a trade imprint, Polygon, which began as a student-led venture um, and was founded by, amongst others, uh, a young Gordon Brown. Um, and I believe uh, Ian Rankin had something to do with Polygon at some point. Um, but balancing the competing demands of trade and academic publishing did become increasingly tricky. Uh, so a decision was taken to focus on the academic publishing side, which by that point was including a growing list of, of journals as well as books. Um, and the relationship that we have with the University of Edinburgh has kind of changed over that time as well. So we're no longer a department of the university, um, although they do remain our sole shareholder, um, but we sort of function as a, as a limited company. And that allows us to very much set our own editorial direction, um, although we still rely very strongly on our press committee, which is made up of academics from the university, um, and we require their approval for, for everything that we publish. So those connections are still strong and important. I was going to ask you what areas you cover, but as you say, it's, it literally is from A to Z, depending <laughs> what the academics are, are, are working on. How do you choose then who you're going to um, publish? Is it uh, the group that get together, is that how it happens? Sure, no, so so that that was the range, but we've actually focused in um, uh, quite, not, not narrowly, but we, we publish in far fewer subject areas now. Okay. So there are nine core subject areas within the okay. humanities and social sciences. Um, so uh, classics and ancient history, film studies, Islamic and Middle Eastern studies and so on. Um, and so we have a team of commissioning editors and each commissioning editor works on one or in some cases two of those lists um, so they're they're responsible for kind of establishing what's happening in the market within those subject areas finding out who the key authors are that we're wanting to publish the important areas that we ought to be covering and they go out and they're, they're commissioning books from academics um, from a global base actually so we do publish academics from the University of Edinburgh but that the author base is, is much much wider than that. And what challenges do you specifically face in publishing today? I'm imagining they might be different to other publishers. Yeah, I would say our number one challenge, um, and this is unique to academic publishing, is open access. Um, which is based on the principle that um, research that is publicly funded should not then be put behind a paywall, which I think is a principle that we can all get behind. Um, and that started with journal publishing in the sciences where there is a lot of research funding and some of that funding is therefore able to be channeled into supporting the, the publishing costs that allows that work to then be made available open access. However, that has now become a really live issue within the humanities across books and journals. And this is an area where there's much less funding. So there's a real challenge in terms of deciding how best to cover the publishing costs if it's not by selling the content. Right. Um, and there are loads of interesting experiments and initiatives underway. You know, everyone's trying to find a sustainable and a scalable answer to the problem, um, but we're, we're not there yet. So that, I think if you asked any academic publisher, they would say that would be the number one challenge facing us. Because I'm guessing that, you know, we're 
other publishers might think a successful book is one that sells well, then you know you get different um, parameters for the, what you consider as exactly, exactly. It's around it's around access and downloads, and it's I mean it, it's really important. It all makes so much sense because particularly because we we operate in a very digital environment now, so we still print our books and we sell print copies, but our digital sales are increasing all the time, and that's where we're able to really kind of emphasise the focus on accessibility and discoverability and all of those things and open access really helps with that but then yes what is success it's not how many print copies of a book you've sold um, so there's all sorts of things to do with downloads and, and reach and um, there are there are purely open access publishers out there who are really good on reporting on all those things and can clearly demonstrate um, that they're reaching a much much wider readership with this approach Oh, it's really interesting to hear that, uh, just how, how different the different publishers are kind of working. Can you tell us uh, about um, three current or future titles that you are excited about? It's difficult yes, to narrow yes. it down to three, I do realise that. <laughs> I know, I know, right, it's like choosing your favourite children, isn't it? Um, but I have, I have chosen three, um, and as I was mentioning earlier, we do um, publish some academic trade books, so those are books that we're hoping can reach a, a wider readership, um, and they're written with that readership in mind. Um, and so the first of those is called Living with Shakespeare by Geoffrey Marsh. Um, it was published in spring this year in a fabulous, big, glossy format packed with loads of amazing colour pictures. And it tells the story of St Helen's Parish in London, which is where Shakespeare lived in the 1590s. So this was the time when he was writing Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Merchant of Venice. And it takes the parish records to really kind of dig into the lives, not only of Shakespeare, but also his neighbours. So you get stories of the bewitched girl who vomited pins um, and her father, the vicar, who killed two people in a football match several wow. years earlier. Um, so we get a real insight into the world in which Shakespeare lived, um, which interestingly was, was a world um, then as now that was battling a pandemic. So then it was the bubonic plague. Um, so I just kind of think it's sort of a, a, a nice, interesting, neat way to see how things come around. Um, the next book uh, is uh, The Eurasian Step by Warwick Ball. Um, this is coming out in a couple of months. Um, it's already been named a summer book of 2021 by Diana Dark in the TLS. Uh, it's another wonderfully illustrated book and it takes the reader on a journey through 5,000 years of history of the Eurasian Steppe, which for those who don't know, um, is the eco-region that stretches 7,000 kilometers from Hungary to Eastern Siberia. And it shows how through its history, languages, art, ideas, um, peoples, nations, identities, it's shaped almost every aspect of life in Europe. Um, and I love it because the history is fascinating in itself, but it's also that idea that as far as Europe is concerned, borders don't really count for very much in the face of the flow of people and their ideas. And, and that's what we all benefit from. So I think it has good resonances for, for today. Um, and last, I wanted to highlight a really important book that we're publishing this autumn, which is David Alston's Slaves and Highlanders. Um, and this explores the prominent role of Highland Scots in the slavery industry of cotton, sugar and coffee plantations in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and there's a focus on what the author calls the silenced histories. So this is the voices of those who were enslaved by Scottish Highlanders in the Caribbean islands and Guyana. And it's no doubt a difficult and deeply uncomfortable part of our history, but one that we think it's important that we face. Um, and David Alston does a really great job of doing that with, with great insight. 
so yeah, those are those are three three of our books that I wanted to tell you about. They all sound fascinating reads, I have to say. Well, thank you, Nicola, for taking time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm now joined by Emily Dewhurst from Kitchen Press. Hello, Emily. Hi, Alistair. So first question is, what can you tell us about Kitchen Press? Well, Kitchen Press is a small independent publishing company and we specialise in food and drink titles. We mostly do restaurant cookbooks, but um, we've been diversifying quite a bit recently. We're very small, we do two or three books a year. And so we work really closely because we do really largely large format uh, picture books. Um, there's a lot of production and we work very, very closely with the restaurants, stroke authors that, um, that we're working with at the time. That's really interesting. Maybe delve into that a bit deeper in a minute, but well, how long have you been going? What is the kind of history of Kitchen? So this is the 10th year, actually. I think this might be our, we launched our first book, The Parlour Cafe Cookbook in November, 2011. And the Parlour Cafe is a, a tiny but much loved um, institution in Dundee, which isn't necessarily, it's changed a bit now, but Dundee's not best known for its food offer. And the parlour was kind of this little beacon, this wonderful chef, Gillian Veal, who just made what she felt like cooking. And the menu changed all the time. And it was kind of a meeting point for all the art school and the university, just a really lovely cafe. And I think I started thinking, you know, if this cafe was in Bloomsbury, she would have a book deal now because some editor would have walked past and gone, oh my God, this wonderful place. And it, and it set me thinking really about how many of these wonderful local cafes there are that have really strong connection to their, to their sort of locals and to their punters and that are sort of quite unsung. So anyway, we did a cookbook and it did really, really well. And it was illustrated, I think for quite a long time, I was worried about sort of step, dipping our toes into food photography because um, it's really easy to get wrong. And especially on a small budget. I mean, all these, you know, the beautiful, these huge Fiden books, absolutely stunning, so expensive to produce. So also really it was in keeping with the kind of vibe of the cafe and there's really, there's a great illustration course at Duncan Jordanston. So we're really lucky in Dundee. We have a lot of great illustrators. So we did it as an illustrated title and it just did really well. And it seemed to, you know, it seemed to kind of hit a chord and it really seemed to be a path that we could get quite a lot out of. You know, there's lots of increasingly really interesting places to eat in Scotland. And we don't only work with Scottish places. We've done, we've done titles down south as well. And um, so, yeah, that's how it started. So it was a case that you kind of saw a gap in the market, but it started as a local gap in the market. It was just started that one idea. Absolutely. And I didn't particularly even know, if I'm honest, whether I would do any more. It was really just a, a project. I was off on maternity leave. It was just one of those ideas that nags at you a little bit. I really love cookbooks. So I thought, well, let's make a cookbook. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was a really enjoyable experience and it all went well. So that's kind of when I shifted from my day job, really. So the practicalities of working with um, a, a restaurant, how does that uh, come about? Do you, you know, do you approach them and say, we think this is good or do they have that idea as well? Does it, um, I mean, it varies project to project. Sometimes we're approached, sometimes we approach them. Um, and it's, it's important 
really it's very very collaborative the way that we yeah. work so obviously one of the biggest problems for restaurants if they if they want to do a book is time obviously i mean especially kind of the really interesting places tend to be chef run so they're not only running the restaurant but they're also cooking all the food and you know especially if they're open day and nights like our first books actually were mostly cafes and i think that's purely because you know, then at least at least the chefs have evenings off, which they can spend writing a book. You yeah. know, it is a very, very labor heavy thing to do running a restaurant or cafe. So we really help with um, editorial and we really work however, however an author wants to do it. So sometimes people will just send over, you know, I don't know, 10 recipes a week and just keep on sending stuff over until we've got enough for a book and then we put it all together. Sometimes we get a complete manuscript sent over. And that's really why we don't actually do that many books, because we're really conscious that, you know, we have a restaurant's reputation in our hands, really. And we really, you know, we really work with them on the project to make sure that it is exactly what they want it to be. I think it's really interesting to me. It kind of reflects Scotland's food scene in general, because you do have these lovely individual quirky restaurants or cafes and um, sometimes the problem is that they try to expand and when the, the expansions take something away from it so I think that's interesting that it seems that you're following that model as well it's got to be something that you're yeah. passionate about and think we can work with these people rather than just saying how many cookbooks can we you know fire out over a period absolutely I mean really a cookbook is only going to the ones that work best are always with a place that um that people get a real buzz from going to and they feel like it's their kind of secret restaurant, you know, and they want to share it with people. So uh, we did a book last year with the seafood shack up in Ullapool. Mm. And I think, you know, it's beloved by locals, but it's also, it's associated with so many people for, for getting out of their normal life and this kind of fantasy fishing village on the West Coast. And, you know, they want to share it with people. I think that's really the secret of its success, actually. So what other challenges do you face in publishing today, particularly, I suppose, with the last year with restaurants being hit? Yeah, I mean, the last year was very interesting for us. And I suppose I think if we you know, if we were a bigger company that did kind of 12 books a year or whatever, it might have been different. But actually, at the start of last year, I actually thought we were snookered because, I mean, all the restaurants have obviously had such an awful time that having to come back and to have the time and money to invest in a cookbook is, you know, it's a big ask, but actually I think, I think a lot of people spent that time working out where they were as a business and really prioritizing on where they wanted to go. And so actually we came, and from a, from a readership point of view, certainly the seafood track couldn't have come at a better time because I think it really provided escapism to all these people, all these people, you know, stuck at home in cities all over the UK could look at this book and it just represented a kind of freedom and a simpler life or, you know, yeah, I think it really helps its appeal actually. For us, lockdown itself didn't hurt at all in terms of our kind of core business. The bit actually that has had knock-on effects has been we do all our printing in India we've got a really great printer in India mm -hmm. who do lovely books and um, they do a really great job but shipping has been hugely hugely affected uh, by the pandemic and also by Brexit in a weird kind of knock-on way so that's probably the thing that has you know the prices have gone up a lot yeah. and just the timescales have changed and are more erratic really.
Well, could you tell us a little bit about three current or future titles that you're uh, excited about? Of course. Well, I'm in London just now for the launch of our most recent title, Eat, Bike, Cook, which is a really small, really great little book. Um, it's based on the illustrations by a woman called Kitty Pemberton Platt, who does illustrated food diaries of female cyclists over a whole range of different uh, distances and events. So it's got, it can range from just an absolute hobbyist cyclist who likes going out for a four hour ride on a Saturday to Tiffany Cromwell, who's an Australian Olympian who, you know what, so they're all looking at what they eat before, during and after their bike rides. And it's the whole point actually is it's not about, it's not like, you know, eat this and you're going to become faster. It's like what people really use to fuel it, how they enjoy themselves, the sort of female community around, around cycling. And, you know, that extends to the beer afterwards and the Haribo that you eat mid-ride to get you up a hill. And so we've got 19, I think, of those food diaries and then lots of complimentary recipes. It's a gorgeous little book and we are launching it at the Rafa Clubhouse in Soho tonight. Fantastic. So which should be really fun. So I'm excited about that one. We've also got a book at the end of August, um, a beautiful book called Macedonia by Katerina Nitsu, which is about the, the food and culture of Macedonia, which really is, it's like a secret Central European kingdom. You know, I think it's, you know, it's so magical to me. It's got these wonderful photographs. It's kind of moody and mountainous. And there's, there's actually very simple, but incredibly tasty food that really reflects the kind of agriculture. They have, they have lots of different, it's so mountainous. There's a lot of different microclimates. Um, so very niche recipes from the different villages. So I'm really excited about that one. It's a lovely looking book. And then in November, um, we are doing a book called Bad Girl Bakery, which is the baking recipes from the wonderful cafe up in Muir of Ord that, uh, you know, that had a tough lockdown in lots of ways and then they've just come out fighting. It's amazing and just the most wonderful recipes. So the start of this year for me was actually spent recipe testing um 80 odd baking recipes <laughs> they're all very good <laughs> it's a hard life i know you know there's got to be perks what can i say well emily i'm quite hungry now i'm going to have to go and get something <laughs> thank you so much for taking time to have a chat with me a pleasure really nice to meet you thanks alistair i'm delighted now to be joined by Francesca Barbini, the founder of Luna Press Publishing. Hello, Francesca. Hi, Alistair. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, can you tell us about Luna Press Publishing? Yes. So I started uh, Luna Press in January 2015. And uh, with Luna Press, uh, I wanted to explore my passion, which is fantasy and science fiction. And so we cover those genre we covered the genre and all the subgenres as well and uh, in particular we have as well as fiction we have Accademia Lunare which is the non-fiction arm of Luna Press and that means uh, that we follow seminars uh, proceedings uh, conference proceedings monographs and uh, call for papers we have one every year all to do with fantasy and science fiction so there are a lot of, pro, you know, a lot of projects, but uh, overall, this is, this is us in a nutshell. So did you see a, a kind of gap in the market there? Because I'm thinking that 
there's not a lot off the top of my head, not a lot of well-known Scottish science fiction. So did you think there was something that you could um, help out? Well, um, when I started, uh, I must admit, uh, I was uh, really just thinking about uh, what I love to read. Yeah. Um, you see, for a small press, uh, it's quite hard uh, to, if you like, you know, to, <laughs> to do too much. And I'm not here to compete with a traditional publisher either, you know. So fundamentally, it, it's so much hard work to run a small press by yeah. yourself yeah. that uh, I thought, at the very least, you know, you have to do something that you're passionate about, because otherwise uh, the, the various challenge challenges would be overwhelming and so I started from there and thanks to that I then came across some amazing talented Scottish writers and from all over the world so that's that's how we got here. Uh, it's really interesting that, that idea of passion has run through all of these interviews that we've done the, the people who have either like yourself started their own publishers who are or who are now working for other publishers um, have got this drive and passion for the stuff that they publish. Um, so when you said the subgenres, could you maybe break that down a bit more? Because people have an idea of science fiction and fantasy, but there's under those umbrellas, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There are, absolutely. So obviously, there is a, an entire range, you know, you go from horror, steampunk, solar punk, cyberpunk, uh, dystopian, uh, and uh, just to mention but a few and of course uh, within the subgenre and the main genre then you have of course all the different markets uh, as well um, but it is incredible uh, to be able to see not just genre still existing from uh, I suppose a few years back like uh, steampunk for example but also the idea of new genre being created because of the current situation you know to an extent science fiction and fantasy, but science fiction, so I suppose it, it always allowed people to, to really explore current events uh, as well as looking at the future, right? So if you take something like solar punk, uh, which is this idea of looking at uh, a future society where actually there is a certain hope about it, as opposed to a sort of destructiveness that you might find in, in other type of punks, if you like. Um, and so that allows us really to explore where we are and where we want to be as a society. So this. And it's an area of fiction, I think, which is um, getting greater hold in people's imaginations. You know, there's, there is a greater amount, partly through publishers like yourself, getting the books out there. But also, I think academically, as you mentioned, that you are working with academics, that's got a greater significance now as well. Absolutely. Um, I think also uh, one of the things I like to do with Academia Lunare is this uh, is to create uh, an environment uh, where you can attract uh, different kind of research. So not just uh, your more traditional scholars, but also the fun, the, the people who, who love and have a passion for a particular topic, for example. And that creates uh, um, this sort of uh, cross uh, situation, you know, and that can actually then be the, the trampoline for more research. And so, so that to me is, is fascinating. You know, we've, we've just released our annual call for, call for papers, which is world building in fantasy and science fiction. And, uh, you know, and again, you can see that the papers come from uh, PhD, 
a student researcher or come from, uh, in fact, the person who has such a passion for a topic that they know it inside out, you know, yeah. and to me, those things are very exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So another side of things, what challenges uh, do you face in publishing today? Well, uh, okay. So, you know, the reality is that when you are a small press, uh, um, of course, uh, like I said before, it's not about competing or about necessarily looking at uh, wanting to be, you know, bigger and bigger. I think that there is an incredible need for excellent small presses. Mm -hmm. And this is really what I'm, what I'm trying to, to work towards every day, you know, um, is the idea of being here to facilitate, facilitate bringing an author from where they are to realizing their dreams. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are here for so many different reasons. So for example, Sometimes, uh, as you can imagine, a smaller project may be something that a traditional publisher cannot take on, yeah. and therefore an author would come to me um, or to any other small press, you know, but uh, so, for example, and I can say this now because the news is official, uh, you know, we, we published uh, um, a writing book by Gareth L. Powell, who's a, a you know, a very important um, and also up and coming as well in a, in a, we do a lot of new things coming happening for him um, with his about writing book and uh, so Gollens has just acquired the book from me and right. to create something even bigger and and it's amazing so to me that is such an uh, an incredible step because there is only so much I suppose that as a small press you can offer uh, even very established writers like Gareth and uh, so to me that is fantastic and and that's why i'm saying you know um there are issues of course yes i won't be able necessarily to have my books always talks uh, in the big stores but our audience knows us from you know from conventions from online presence and also it's this uh, ability to be a lot more flexible in what we decide to do so for example at luna press uh, i work a lot with charities and so we have a special page just for the, the, col the collaboration we have with charities. And uh, another aspect, for example, is the international approach. I have my favorite page on my website is the Luna family map of the world, which uh, you can <laughs> see on the website, because our authors are from all over the world, you know, because one of my aim, maybe it's because I'm Italian, right? But it's to be able to bring uh, the fantasy and science fiction coming from the, all over the world uh, and not just to direct people to, I suppose, uh, you know, an Anglophone market. And so one of the things we do is to publish a lot of fantasy and science fiction in translation. So right. this year, for example, we released uh, Greek science fiction, Brazilian science fiction. And, and those are a lot of different projects that uh, um, as I think as a press, uh, I want to try and work on and, and build to, you know, to make uh, a very exciting environment for small presses, you know, in general, even if I can't do the humongous project with the humongous budget, but I'm sure there are a lot of things that we can do, you know, if I focus on where I am, you know, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. It sounds as though you're incredibly busy uh, as it is. Um, with that in mind, could you maybe tell us something about three of your current or future titles that you're very much excited about? Yes, absolutely. So um, on the 3rd of August, we released uh, um, this uh, beautiful novel. Ooh, 
am I <laughs> I'm blurring? The background is blurring it, but I yeah. am blurring. Okay, so this is this is our undoing by Lorraine Wilson. Uh -huh. So this is a debut novel by uh, an incredible author. She is so very talented, and uh, the book is doing really well. And actually. It's a dystopian novel about uh, a future Europe and is set uh, in the Rila mountains in uh, Bulgaria. And it follows the story of uh, a conservation biologist. And uh, I'm not gonna say too much more, but the book, uh, this is our undoing, is also available in the Edinburgh Book Festival actual physical shop as well. Right. So I'm very excited for this. Um, another project that got us really excited this year is the Luna Novella series, which is, uh, I am, this is incredible, this, all this blurring. <laughs> if you hold it under your chin, I think you oh, might- Oh, there you go, there you go, that's perfect. So we have this new series. So these were the first six novellas that came out uh, this year. We got uh, more coming out next year. And again, they come from uh, Scotland, from Uganda, from all over the world, because that's what we like to do. Yeah. And uh, I also, these are the book I was talking about before, The Worlds Apart, World Building in Fantasy and Science Fiction. So this is one of our annual call for papers and uh, you can find uh, many more in uh, the Luna store as well as the Edinburgh Book Festival online store as well as the physical one. So there is so much. Uh, honestly, we are about to release our 20th title this year and uh, and, you know, I, I, we don't know where to start, so you better stop me now. Stop. We could go on for some time. Well, maybe we'll talk to you uh, uh, later and or longer. That would be quite nice okay. to do. But in the meantime, thanks, Francesca. Uh, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Alistair. I'm delighted to be joined now by Joe Sanders from the Gaelic Books Council. Hello, Joe. Hi, Alistair. So first of all, what can you tell us about the work of the Gaelic Books Council? So, uh, yeah, the Gaelic Books Council is a, a charitable organisation uh, based in, in Partick in Glasgow. We, we have the main aim of supporting Gaelic language uh, publishers and writers. Um, and we also work to kind of promote the, the uh, promote Gaelic books uh, nationally and internationally as well. Um, so the main ways we, we support publishers and, and writers is through um, grant funding, um, but also through uh, events. We, we run events and we also um, uh, work and, uh, and, and try and get writers into book festivals, um, working with book festivals. Uh, and we also do marketing and we, we sell books um, online and in our, in our shop in, in Partick. Um, we, we also do uh, quite a lot of children's events as well. Uh, we've got a project called Leva Shinely Linda, Read and Sing with Linda, um, that is currently running uh, online at the minute. So uh, starting back in August, we'll have um, three storytelling singing sessions per week um, broadcast to, to uh, a load of schools at once. And, and it'll be a, a big group of kids all, all listening to, to stories in Gaelic. And when you say broadcast, is that going to be online or is it somewhere else? Yeah, so so it's done it's done online through through the Glow platform, and uh, we work with uh, eSchool, the um, online education provider based in that Hebrides, uh, to deliver that. 
Um, so what about the history of the Gaelic Speech Council? How long has it been going for? Yeah, the, the Gaelic Books Council has got quite an interesting history. It was established in, in 1968, so it's, it's been going for almost uh, 53 years. Uh, it was established at, at Glasgow University and, and the poet and academic Derek Thompson was the first chairperson. Um, kind of the, the main reason for, for the establishment of the, of the Books Council was that there wasn't really much reading, read for pleasure books at the time. Right. Um, Although there was there was a, a monthly periodical called Gadam, uh, which contained some some short stories and poetry, um, there wasn't really a lot of genre fiction or or, or biographies, nonfiction, that sort of thing. Um, so the the aim of the the organisation was to was to uh, secure grant funding and and help um, publishers and, and authors uh, produce uh, these sort of books. So so the first book that was published um, with support from us was called Orher Team uh, on the Edge of Time by Callan T. McCannich. And it's a, a collection of science fiction and fantasy short stories. So, so that kind of, um, that shows that from the get-go, the Gaelic Books Council was, was trying to, to kind of push the boundaries of, of Gaelic literature. Uh, and that's kind of continued up until the present day. Um, but uh, that kind of um, pushing the boundaries, but kind of coupled with uh, an eye on on the tradition and, and trying to also publish more more traditional Gaelic um, poetry and, and stories. Because I was going to ask you kind of what areas or genres you cover, but I'm guessing you cover whatever there is as long as the Gaelic language is involved. Is that right? Yeah, that that's correct. We don't really uh, specialize in 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 kind of one genre, uh, we, we we support publishers to produce anything from uh, from fantasy, crime fiction, historical fiction, graphic novels, um, a lot of children's books, and 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 some some nonfiction as well. Uh, so so there's a, a really wide range of stuff. And you mentioned there that it wasn't just national, but you have an international um, range. Uh, is that a big market internationally? Um, we do sell quite a lot of books, surprisingly, uh, around the world. In, in North America, mainly, uh, we, we sell quite a lot to there. But um, we, we've also sold to, to Japan, and, and there's somebody down in Argentina that buys Gallic books. Um, yeah, kind of all over Europe. It, it's really, really interesting to see uh, the, the kind of the, the global interest that, that Gallic has. And, and you know, quite often we'll we'll do events and we'll we'll send out a survey afterwards, and people say that they were they were watching from California or from um, you know Nova Scotia in Canada. Um, so yeah, that's really nice. It's it is interesting. I find the same thing with Scotch Way. Sometimes you look at where people are listening from, and it's it's quite surprising. But I guess like any diaspora, you know, people get everywhere around the world. Um, so what challenges do you face in publishing today? Because I think they might be slightly different, perhaps, from other people we've spoken to. Yeah, it's slightly different, yeah. I, I think the kind of main challenge, though, is, is one that's shared with the, the, the English publishing industry as a whole. And, and I guess that's just trying to encourage people to keep reading in, in the age of um, uh, Netflix and social media, video games. Um, you know, all these technologies are just getting better all the time. 
and in the publishing industry we have to kind of remind people that that books offer kind of a, a more a more analog and a more simple perhaps mindful form of entertainment that um that make it really worth the effort and sort of give you give you a break from the from the you know the the frenetic uh, modern world um and then and then also reading reading stories in in gaelic if you're a gaelic speaker reading in gaelic um kind of from from a gaelic perspective is is you know it's, it's a really really uh, worthwhile thing thing to do um and and just kind of uh more more broadly i guess the the main challenge we we face as as the gaelic books council is trying to identify where the the gaps are in in the in the canon and and we, we've done uh, market research with with focus groups in in the highlands and uh, in the highlands and islands and and we've made an effort to kind of listen to people and see see what they want to read and, and what they want to buy and and now we're we're working with publishers to to try and fill some of those gaps um and are you also doing translation work is that something that you're involved in yeah yeah um we, we do uh, support publishers to 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 bring out uh, translations um for for example we, we've we've um uh, support the publication of a lot of the uh, Tintin books and, and the Asterix books, um, and the uh, a book we've got that's just on the way on the way from the printers now is um, a translation of Animal Farm uh, by by George Orwell. Um, that's that that was done by uh, Angus Peter Campbell, and that, coming out from Lewis Press. Um, so so that's really interesting. It's the f first time Orwell's been translated into Gaelic. Um, so yeah, we, we, we focus mainly on, on original texts, yeah. but it's also great to have some of the, some of the classics in, in Gaelic as well. And talking about um, new books, do you have three perhaps current or future uh, releases that you could tell us about? Yeah, so, um, so there's uh, Animal Farm, Puanus and Created It, which will be, will be hitting the shelves uh, very soon, um, so so keep an eye on, on our social media for that, and on the press's um, social media. Um, the, a couple more that that have come out just recently is um, this one in, in Jack Town. Um, this is a poetry collection by uh, Sandy Nicole Jones, who is the uh, the um, the bard of Encomen Gaelach, um, and she she's this is her second collection. And uh, it's it's a really interesting kind of uh, broad collection. Um, she you know uses a lot of different poetic forms, um, and and yeah, it's 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 a really great great piece of work. Uh, and then this is uh, another book called Kirscht, um, which means Saint Kilda. I should have said Jacobtown means the, the seventh wave, um, but Kirscht uh, Saint Kilda. Is is a, a crime novel from Ian F. McLeod, published by Clare earlier this year, and it's um, it's an interesting one because it's a, a kind of a, a counter history uh, type thing where the the author reimagines um, a universe where where there's still still people living on St Kilda, and uh, and a, a, a murder has has taken place, uh, and it kind of goes from there. Oh, that sounds excellent. That sounds right up my street, I'd say. 
Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking time to have a chat with me today. It's been fascinating to hear about the work that you do. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I'm now joined by Jean Finlay, founder and head of publishing for Scotland Street Press. Hello, Jean. Hello. So first of all, can you tell us about Scotland Street Press? Well, it's a small, uh, a small independent publishing house in Edinburgh, and um, we publish a biography, fiction and poetry. And um, we started off with one person and we're now five. Uh, part-time um, and uh, we've grown quite quickly well since night since 2014. So that that was your, when you began 2014 yeah. what, what was the kind of inspiration to be, to begin uh, Scotland Street? Well I came back to Edinburgh after 20 years away and um, the two things were happening in 2014 I mean the main reason I came back was the referendum the independence referendum. I didn't want to be locked out of Scotland in any way. If Scotland was going independent, I wanted to be in it. Yeah. And um, there was a huge amount of energy then, as we all know. Um, and uh, probably that was all part of it. It was just, it was in the air. But but I came back with a, with a book, which um, was launched at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And it had taken me 10 years to write that book. It was a a big a literary biography of Charles Scott McCreeve, who was the translator of Proust and Pirandello and, and Stondal. And um, the book did incredibly well. It had a, an enormous, I think somebody told me it had more reviews than any other book of that type that year in 2014. Right. And um, my agent sold the rights to Farrah, Strauss and Giro in New York, which is part of Pan Macmillan. And um, with that money, I set up Scotland Street Press. And the first book that I published was a collection of Charles Scott Moncrief's own writings, which were published in the 1920s by, had originally been published by T.S. Eliot in the Criterion or by G.K. Chesterton in his, in his um, um, magazine called The Witness. And um, that, that was the first book. So it, it was founded on the, the ideas and the literature and the poetry of this man, Charles Scott Moncrief, in many ways. So it had links into Proust and memory and memoir. And the first books we published were memoirs because it's interesting what you can reach through living memory. That is that outward looking European uh, attitude. That's that's what, and, and right from the beginning in Scotland Street Press, I've had Erasmus interns from Italy, from Slovenia, from Germany, from Holland. And they have really helped me build this company. Um, because they're paid for by Erasmus. And as you know, publishing is incredibly expensive. Mm. You know, it costs about six and a half thousand pounds to bring out one book. And then, and you have to pay people. Mm. Um, luckily, with these wonderful interns from the Erasmus, um, and they were all highly trained and qualified people, um, uh, and they were free. And they helped me build this company. And now, um, now we have enough money to we actually pay our part-time workers <laughs> it's a bit sad it's very sad we don't get the erasmus trainees anymore but and is that a recent situation um with erasmus stopping i'm presuming yes they were stopped it's completely yeah. stopped i don't i can't get them anymore you know it's um well no, nobody can you can't go out there either. i mean it's appalling that yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's a shocking stop in our cultural 
um, influences to Europe and from Europe, which are absolutely vital in in the you know the education of young people and in and in our own in the expansion of our own ideas. <laughs> well, that clearly is one challenge uh, for you publishing today. Can you maybe talk about a few others? What are the challenges you face? Well, it was a huge challenge during COVID, of course, because we were all um, stuck in our rooms and having to communicate the way we are doing at the moment, which, as we know, is, is you know, it's great that we can do it, but it's not like talking to a real living person in the no. real room. There are lots of things that don't happen. We, we you know, the ideas that we generate from being alive together in the same room are so much more powerful, I, th I find. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that's the case. Yes, um, that, that's a challenge. And publishing, uh, and of course, I was completely naive when I went into publishing. I was an author. I knew nothing about publishing at all. And I would probably not have gone into it had I known about the financial <laughs> structure of, of the publishing world. I mean... Um, since I, I, you know, since uh, the since Amazon, uh, well, Amazon likes to take sixty percent of your cover price, uh. and the bookshops have followed suit, and then you have to pay your distributor, and they tend to take about twenty five to thirty, and then you have to you have to pay for everything else as well. You have to pay a typesetter, proofreader, editor, printer, mm -hmm. a big one. Um, and, and you have to do some marketing and some people have an office. I mean, we do it in a spare bedroom in my house, which is another reason we've survived because yeah. you do it in your spare bedroom and um, it gets a bit crowded now with five of us in there. But, um, uh, you know, the, the challenge, and that's why publishing, I realised in the end, small publishers are like small theatres with, with subsidised arts. That's yeah. what we become, subsidised yeah. arts. And we don't have to be like that. It's not like that in Europe. I mean, in countries where they have a net book agreement, like in Belgium or um, Belgium, France, Germany. In Germany, authors can live because they earn a decent amount of money. Yeah. Um, authors, publishers, everybody connected to the industry have decent remunerations for their work. That's interesting. So can you tell us finally about three of your current or future uh, publications that you're excited about? Well, you were the person who gave us the most amazing review for our first piece of fiction, which was called Errant Blood in 2017. I remember, it's a terrific and, book, yeah. And, so, and he has been, <laughs> and finally now, this uh, next month, we're bringing out the second um, in that series. It's bigger and chunkier, um, uh, it's called The Purified, and um, that's very exciting. I mean, you know, it's it's better, it's getting better, and um, it's the same characters in the same right. village in the Highlands, and with a bigger and more terrifying um, uh, thing, terrible thing, something yeah. worse than a body has been found the, beneath the waters of, of the Great Loch. Um, uh, and it's um, anyway that's very exciting I'm not going to give anything away no. but it's beautifully written beautiful writing about the, about nature about loyalty about uh, you compared them to Ian Banks yes that's right yes 
It's, and it's also a psychological thriller. It's more of a psychological thriller than a crime novel. I mean, I'm trying to also work out how to categorise the books that we published. <laughs> they go into so many categories. We did this wonderful one um, about called Birds, Birds and Scots by Hamish, Hamish MacDonald. And it had the most wonderful illustrations. So we've done a lot of books of poetry which have illustrations as yeah. well. And um, they're doing very well. The, 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 we've got a, a US distributor now, and, and particularly Birds and Scots is doing terribly well in, in the States. Um, um, oh, another book that we're really, really proud of is Alan Darker's Children. I don't know right. if I sent you that. No, I have not know that. No, I must send you that. So um, in Belarus, we've been publishing we're the only publisher actually in the whole of the uk who translates from the belarusian language because ah. in Belarus, you're not allowed to speak belarusian you only have to speak russian and um so i decided to translate from the belarusian language because it's an oppressed language because there are so many parallels in scotland about what oppressing a language does to a people and so this book is in two languages russian and belarusian and we've translated it into scots and english Fantastic. and um it's Petra Reed, who, who who's a poet who we've published before, who's done the translation into Scots, and it's beautiful, beautiful uh, translation into Scots. Uh, it, um, she's worked really closely with a Belarusian translator about all the nuances, the history of the literary Scots and the non-literary and demotic Scots, different types of Scots, which has gone into it through the different characters, and you know he's worked with her and, and how that parallels with the Belarusian. Anyway, that is so good that um, New Directions in New York, uh, which is a really very good small publishing house, they have just bought the rights to that for the same amount as I got for Chasing Lost Time in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a, a great um, a great triumph. You know, it's about language, it's about translation, it's about communication, it's about here. It's actually about helping helping a country which we all know is like the North Korea of Europe yeah. and giving him this voice and he's now escaped and he's in Austria and um, uh, he's all right at the moment <laughs> but um, that's um, and now it's going to go out in the states and they have a huge reach new directions yeah. and the colleges are ordering it and everything so we're very proud of that oh that's fantastic to hear Jean thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk to me today it's been absolutely fascinating well, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Now joined by Peter Burns from Polaris Publishing. Hello, Peter. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Oh, a pleasure. So I'm going to ask you a similar question to that we've been asking all our publishers is, what can you tell us about Polaris Publishing? Uh, so we've been going for 10 years this year now, started in 2011. Um, it was all quite slow burn for a long time. We published our first book in 2012 and then did another one in 2013. And we kind of did one or two a year uh, for about the first seven years or so. And then we started to ramp it up a little bit more. Um, we, we had a, we were due to do maybe about 20 books last Last year and then because of obviously COVID uh, we shuffled things around moved some stuff on to, to this year and we ended up doing 11 books last year and 27 this year or will have done by the end of the year um, 
and so it's been yeah so it's been quite a quite a shift in the last few years about upping our production so um how long have you you said how long you've been going but why did you decide to start it did you see a kind of gap in the market or was it just a love of books that got you going yeah so i did um i did the postgrad uh publishing course at napier in 2006 uh or 2005 2006 and i got a job uh interning at berlin limited in late 2006 um and i worked there until full-time until about three years ago and i started polaris kind of on the side and they were really supportive throughout that whole process uh and they still do all my distribution and, and marketing and sales and things like that for me which is absolutely brilliant so i think we've got a really good relationship there um and so i was running we set up when i was there a sports imprint called arena sport um and we did maybe five or six titles a year but there were a few that either I had ideas for or we didn't have the budget to do at Arena so I took them on and, and did them with Polaris and that's kind of how it started just really as a kind of a side gig um, but when that took off properly there wasn't time to do both jobs and so I switched over uh, did some freelance for uh, Berlin still running their sports list and then that's recently just ended and it's now full-time Polaris now. Oh, fantastic to catch at this stage where you're going. And it's interesting you're hearing um, how you've been supported by uh, Berlin because I think as this, hopefully this podcast and the showcase is showing is that there seems to be real support among publishers and, and, and you know, um, help for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I've, a um, couple of projects that we've done, I've done co-pubs with uh, Backpage Press through in Glasgow. Um, initially, when we started out with Polaris, we were doing co-pubs with Arena for some for some projects. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a real, um, there's a synergy and a support network across those businesses, which has been brilliant. And it's, you know, it's been a joy working with everybody. Um, so no, it's really, it's really, really good. It's a nice, it's a lovely scene that we're all able to, to do that for each other. So you've touched on sports, but uh, what other areas uh, do you cover with Polaris? Yeah, so we start, we branched out last year into popular culture a bit more, did some movie books, uh, some music books, and we're pursuing that a bit more next year. We're growing that list. Uh, we've done some children's books. I mean, they've been sport related, but the idea is to eventually have our own children's list and it won't just be um, confined to doing sport related titles. Um, I mean, I very much kind of fell into the sport. I never planned to be a sports publisher, but that's what I've become. And I've also now written, um, I think it's nine books myself um, in the last in the last 10 years. So uh, which I didn't ever expect I would do, which is kind of funny. That's very interesting that the publisher decides to to write themselves. And that wasn't anything that you particularly had an ambition to do. You just kind of saw. No, I, I wanted to be a writer, but I always thought I'd be a novelist. And then I, I somehow ended up, I've become a sports sports writer. Um, and in many ways, it kind of, it's kind of glorified self-publishing because I'm also the publisher, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's working so far okay. Absolutely. Well, that takes us on to the next question, which is what challenges do you face in publishing today? Um, I mean, I think the two biggest ones out, you know, in the last two years 
have been the consequence of COVID and more recently Brexit. Um, mm. With COVID, uh, obviously we've gone, a, lo a lot more has gone online and Amazon has been very, um, for the last 18 months particularly, so I mean, it's always been good as a, as, a, as a main outlet for our books, but it's been obviously especially strong. Uh, but then a problem there has been, you know, the warehousing issues that they've had so that if we deliver books to them and they've got pallets, which I'm sure all the publishers you speak to have had this issue where pallets are piled up outside Amazon warehouses and not getting checked onto their system. And then we're finding that buy buttons are being taken down because they don't have any stock, but we're looking on our system and we can see that they've got hundreds of copies of our books sitting in pallets outside their warehouses and just not checked in on their system yet. So that was, that's been a real problem over the last, well, since kind of November through till this summer. And then with Brexit, uh, get, you're dealing with raw material problems with the printers. And then since uh, 1st of July, the change in um, selling books into Europe and things like that uh, has been a, suddenly thrown up all sorts of new issues that we hadn't, you know, yeah. anticipated. Um, so those are the two, those are the two right now that are, that are the biggest issues that we're coming up against. And neither of those are things you could have foreseen, really, you know, you wouldn't have had no. a chance to, yeah. And, you know, especially with Amazon completely out with your control. So you're dealing with trying to deal with authors who are upset that their buy button's down or they're getting notifications that the books will be arriving in six weeks where we're going, no, if you just hang on, they'll be in in the next two or three days, they'll update their systems and roll back on. But, you know, you're, it's... It's kind of firefighting where you're completely powerless to do is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, on a brighter note, can you tell us about three of your current or future books that you're particularly excited about? Uh, yeah, well, I've got uh, my lovely display behind me, but uh, for anyone listening, we've got um, The Dream Factory by Ryan Baldy, which is just about to come out, which is an incredible look at uh, football academies, um, oh. looking at players who make it, those who don't. Uh, it's incredibly written, brilliantly researched, um, and that comes out in two weeks. I'm very excited about that one. Um, I mentioned earlier that we partnered with Backpage Press on some titles, and we've now got um, a relationship with the Athletic Sports oh, yeah. uh, website to produce books from their articles that they're producing. So we're doing kind of um, season reviews of teams that win the Premier League, uh, win the Champions League, if should that happen, and maybe branching out into some other sports and uh, some other books with them. So that's really exciting as a, yeah. as a new project that we're doing. And finally, a couple of kind of passion pieces for me, which, um, was this is your Everest and Legacy of the Lions, which I co-wrote with uh, Tom English and Gavin Hastings, respectively, which have just come out. This is your Everest was about the 1997 Lions tour to South Africa, uh, and that's been selling really well for us. Been getting brilliant reviews for it, so that's all very exciting. And similarly, the book I did with Gavin Hastings, Legacy of the Lions, is uh, a look at leadership lessons learned from Lions captains, opposition senior players over the last uh, 35 years or so of touring with the Lions. So that's been a lot of fun writing those, but they were kind of lockdown projects and uh, it's nice to see them out this, out this year and doing really well.
Oh, that's fantastic. These are big and exciting names. I mean, and I know that The Athletic has some of the finest sports journalists around now writing for them. So that's fantastic. Yeah, the quality of their output is absolutely incredible. So yeah, and they're very, very exciting to be partnering with them. Well, Peter, thanks very much for taking time to have a chat. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. That was great. Thank you so much, Alistair. It's been really fun. I'm delighted to be joined now by Claire Kane from Fledgling Press. Hello, Claire. Hi, Alistair. Nice to meet you. And you. And uh, first of all, can you tell us about Fledgling Press? Uh, well, Fledgling Press was founded back in the year 2000 by a retired psychologist, Xander Wedderburn. Um, he founded the, the company when, when he retired. Um, and initially it was um, a, sh a short run press uh, focusing only on debut authors and Xander effectively just published what he liked. Um, I came along in 2010, having just finished a degree at Edinburgh University, career change as it were, uh, in English and Scottish literature. And I have uh, taken a manuscript to him uh, that somebody else had actually written and I had formatted for them. Um, we got on very, very well. Uh, he liked the manuscript. He took the book, which was a, a debut, it was a, a life story. Uh, and things just progressed from there. Xander and I got on very, very well. I had no background in publishing whatsoever, but he needed a hand. So I kind of fell into it by accident, as it were. Um, and from there, uh, as I got more and more involved with the company, I actually began working with them, a partnership with them in 2011 um, and took over the company shortly after that although Xander was still there, sort of guiding me as it were. Uh, and we kind of moved away slightly from debut. Uh, we still focus on debut authors, but with the best will in the world, you can't run a business just publishing debut authors only because you know they have no audience initially. Um, so we've moved sort of into establishing authors and keeping them on our books as well and now authors approach us to you know established authors so that's that, good that's quite a story going up with the manuscript and ending up owning the company that sounds like a, <laughs> a story in itself well <laughs> i just found the whole the whole industry really interesting you know and i mean books have always been my first love yeah. uh, initially before publishing i was a systems analyst um, but had children, you know, career change after that. So that's that's how it came about, you know. So you say that uh, you had focused on debut authors, but so what kind of range of subject matter um, were you covering? And are you covering now that you've moved well, on? Well, it has, it has changed. Initially, Xander focused a lot on life stories and poetry, quite a lot of poetry and historical fiction. Uh, when I came along, um, Poetry's not my bag, so at, at all, uh, and that was quite quickly dropped. Um, historical fiction, we still we still uh, do some historical fiction, mainly through Alex Nye, um, she's a fantastic writer of YA and historical fiction. Um, and we then moved into crime fiction. We had a very successful series, 2013, 14, 15 ebook series 
of quite trashy commercial crime fiction on ebook uh, mainly. Um, and then life stories we still do. I, I focus, I like life stories with a twist. So we've done one about a, a transgender lady, Julie Clark, who um, transitioned on the Isle of Call, her life story. Um, we've done another one recently, um, Graham Morgan's Start, which is, Graham's a schizophrenic, um, but he's very well and highly thought of, works in the mental health arena himself. Um, uh, so we did his life story. Uh, YA as well is another big thing that we got into. It was something that Xander didn't do at all. Uh, at the time when I started, my children were, two of them were teenagers. Um, and it was something that interested me at that time. And we have, again, um, some some very good YA authors now as well. So that, that's our broad sort of focus, really. With some literary fiction as well, sorry. <laughs> Other stuff like Kirkland Caccioni, um, who's... Oh, yes. Very, we published His Happiness is, is Wasted on Me last year. Now, that's a kind of standalone adult book from, from Kirkland. But if I see something and I think the writing's great, I will, if I can, possibly put it into the schedule, you know, if I think it merits it. I suppose so. that's one of the joys of ha having being in charge, is that if something comes across your desk, you think, yeah, I really want to champion this. Yeah, uh, it. that's it, that's it. Uh, it's interesting talking about uh, YA young adult um, books because I think it seems to me anyway, uh, I might be wrong about this, but there's been a real um, increase in the, that area, in that sector of publishing. Yes, and I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that YA is not just read by, in, in fact, I would say probably proportionally it's not read by young people. It's, it's older young people, as it were. So anything up to, you know, mid-20s and older um, the younger younger readers um, who are still adult can can engage with with YA. So there's quite a broad readership, you know. Um, and I think they tend to be slightly smaller. They're easier to read, you know, more accessible. I think in, in many ways, yeah. And something else you mentioned, which nobody else I've spoken to has, is choosing to uh, publish as an ebook. Um, how do you come up with the decision to do that? Uh, for a while we focused on ebooks because we, we discovered, um, well, the, the demographics are very different, I think, ebook yeah. readers versus print. Um, so we dabbled a bit in, uh, normally I would, well, in the past, I, if I felt an ebook, a, a book might not catch a readership in print form, it's very cheap to actually produce an ebook. We we have the ability in-house via my husband <laughs> to do that ourselves. So right. you know, if there are books that I feel might not sell a lot in print, then occasionally I'll just bring it out in ebook, see what happens because it's not a huge cost to us, you know. But I might feel that, that that author still needs a voice, you know. What challenges, what other challenges do you face uh, in publishing today? <sighs> well, obviously the pandemic's been really detrimental to us. Uh, last year we had I think eight books planned, we did three because uh, mm -hmm. we locked down just as our first book was coming out um, March 23rd. March 26th was the launch at Blackwell's, that was cancelled. Um, that book was Whirligig though, which went on to do very very well. It was long listed for CWA 
uh, dagger, debut dagger, and um, shortlisted for the McIlvany Prize, uh, Bloody Scotland. So that was great for us, but there was so much uncertainty. I mean, sales plummeted. They just fell off a cliff initially because Amazon was too busy supplying toilet paper, I think, to supply books <laughs> for several weeks, you know. Um, so navigating that has been really difficult. We, we put five books on hold and then this year had to take a really um, good look at what was going to be commercial uh, and also attractive enough to a reading audience, you know. So that's, that sales has been our main problem and also uh, a big part of our business is uh, physical book launches. Yeah. That's, that's a big, big thing for us uh, that's gone. So we've had to look at different ways of uh, doing that too, you know. Um, yeah. Well, taking that and hopefully looking more positively, can you tell us about three of your either current or future titles that you're excited about? Yeah, that, that was really difficult for me because I really carefully looked at the books. We've only done six this year yeah. and every single one I reckoned was great on its own. You know, I mean, being a small independent publisher, I can't. I don't just publish it. I've got to be 100% behind a book before I'll yeah. publish it. Um, so, but but the gems this year are uh, Too Near the Dead by Helen Grant. It's a horror gothic fiction novel. Um, she's a fantastic author, great, really highly skilled. Um, and the feedback is brilliant. It was just, it was in The Guardian yesterday, which was you know, yeah, great absolutely. for us. Uh, <laughs> Ross Sayers as well. He's a new author to us. Obviously, he's been published by Kranikin. The book that we published was his lockdown novel, as it were. And again, I just thought it's speculative fiction, slightly sci-fi, a, a departure for us. Sci-fi is not my bag. But this was clever enough uh, and near enough the truth that it's believable as, as a book. So I, I, I really rate Ross's book. Uh, and up and coming, we have the sequel to Whirly Gig, which uh, obviously and Andrew James Gregg, um, I have high hopes for that book, uh, Crime, that's coming out in October. So they're the three, but the other three books, which were fake news, um, short stories by Alex Nye with historical focus, mm -hmm. uh, written by Death, and a debut crime by an author called Amanda Mitchison. I really rate these all highly too, you know. Um, well, I've bought at least one of those. I'll let you know that for free. <laughs> <laughs> that, Thank you. Fantastic. Um, Claire, thanks so much for taking time to have a chat with me today. I, I really do appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. So to round this Scottish Publishers Showcase podcast off, I'm joined now by Vicky Riley from Publishing Scotland. Hello, Vicky. Yeah. Um, so first question is simple. What can you tell us about Publishing Scotland and what you do? Yeah, well, Publishing Scotland's been around for actually a, a long time now. I think we think we're, we're in our fourth decade of of um, of working, and really we're the trade and networking association for the publishing industry in Scotland. So we have member publishers um, ranging from the very big like HarperCollins or DC Thompson to the very small like micro presses like uh, Luna Press who you spoke to earlier and uh, 404 Inc and, and various others. 
Um, what we do is we provide um, networking opportunities, both domestically and internationally, um, so that they can, you know, build up their uh, uh, visibility in the trade. Um, we do marketing for them. We do catalogues and websites and, and uh, promotional work for them. We obviously it's been um, cut a little bit with, with COVID, but we usually do conferences and we usually take a stand at the trade fair and allow our members to come to trade fairs at Bologna and Frankfurt and, and London. Um, we do lots of training for publishers as well um, so they can develop their skills. And we just sort of, um, we advocate on their behalf and champion what they do and, and make sure that, that, um, that we allow them to do the best kind of publishing that they can and, um, and, and, and get the word out for, for Scottish books, Scottish publishers and Scottish authors. So with that in mind, why do you think events like the Scottish Publisher Showcase are important? Well, a lot of our publishers, our member publishers, are independent publishers, and um, a lot of them, um, you know, they they they're they're not the ones that usually get all the publicity and all the promotion that maybe some of the the bigger publishers and the London publishers can get, and so we're very much um, excited to to really just shout out loud how successful and how varied and how diverse. The publishing scene is up in Scotland and so we thought you know with with an event like this publishing showcase to I don't think many people are aware just of how much great mm. publishing work goes on in Scotland I mean it's to to be honest punters don't really spend that m a much amount of time pay, paying attention to publishers in the way that the trade does but I think for 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 people to become more aware of just the 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 work that's that's, that's coming through in Scotland is is a good thing for everybody because there's just so much to to shout about and and showcase which is what we're doing. I think you're right. I think readers maybe um, with a few exceptions don't really care who's publishing what, but writers often maybe don't know how to find the right publisher. So what kind of advice would you give to someone looking to get their work published? Well, most publishers um, will have their own website and generally publishers will have a submissions page where they'll make it clear that if they do or do not accept unsolicited submissions. An unsolicited submission is, is a submission that doesn't come from an agent if it just comes from the writer itself. And, um, uh, and so, if you go onto the Publishing Scotland website, for example, we've got a page where we list all our members that take you through to their websites. So it's a brilliant research tool, our, our website, to help writers and other people involved in publishing to sort of point them in the right, the right direction for the best kind of publishers to send their submissions to. Because every publisher has their own little, their own character. And the, 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 the books that they, 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 they specialise in or the kind of books that they do really well. And so it's always useful for writers to know that before they submit to publishers because they're more likely to get a positive reaction from publishers that, say, if you're a poetry publisher that does publish poetry or a crime writer, not, not every um, publisher publishes crime fiction. So it's, it's, it's just good to go to the publisher, Publishing Scotland website, see your member, member publishers, look at their website, see what they do and do all that work beforehand so that 
you don't get as many rejections as, <laughs> as, you, as you don't want. Well, I think this the showcase and this podcast as well have shown the kind of breadth of publishing that there is. And, and it's that thing, isn't it, about finding the right one for you. And similarly, I suppose, the publishers finding the right authors um, for them uh, as, as well. And with that in and mind... readers too, because, readers, you know, yeah. some readers, you know, maybe they're you know, they're maybe stuck in a rut and they love crime fiction or they love or they're looking for children's books and they're just not quite sure where to look for. And and as I say, if you go to the Publishing Scotland website, you'll find a plethora of, of publishers, sports publishers, children's publishers, academic publishers, trade publishers, just a whole manner. And what advice would you give to someone who is thinking of getting involved in, in, in publishing? I guess there are you know, people who think, oh, I've written this book or a friend of mine's written this book and I want to get help them get out there. What kind of advice would you give them? Well, again, like the Publishing Scotland website is a good starting point. We do have a section on our website about publishing as well. And um, we're developing um, that on our website to, to talk about the publishing process. Um, and so it's, it's a good place to start to, to find out a little bit more about how the publishing world works. But then there's also um, like loads of, of, of other um, resources that you can use. You can, you know, if, especially if you're, if, if you're new to publishing, I would recommend um, getting in touch with the Society of Young Publishers. They normally do lots of good events and training sessions for folk that, that are wanting a good introduction. Similarly, we do as well. And also just um, we, we, there's a lot of jobs and opportunities on the Publishing Scotland website as well. And that can that can list internships and it can list courses and, and uh, funded opportunities as well. So, you, you know, you can find out things in the jobs and opportunities section as well. And um, just keep an eye out on, like, book Twitter is very um, friendly and helpful and and you can just, you know, join the conversation. Most people, if you if you do join in the conversation and ask questions, they're more than happy to, to reply and, and lead you to the next place that you need to know what, what, what you want to do. And that's a good point, actually, that uh, a, most publishers now will have social media presence. And if you do want to follow them, keep an eye on what they're doing and maybe see if they're the, the, the publisher that you would like to engage with. That's a great way of, of doing it. Um, I'm aware that we've only really, really scratched the surface in this podcast and in the showcase about the Scottish publishers that are out there. Um, but it does sound as though maybe the Publishing Scotland website is the best place to find out others. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good starting point. Because that that'll just point you in lots of different directions. As I say, we've 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 just got tons of links to other resources as well. And so it's just it's a it's a good starting point for when you're first dipping your toe into the Scottish publishing scene, and then you'll probably just find like me that you just <laughs> want to dive deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can really go down the rabbit hole and find just how many <laughs> Scottish books and Scottish publishers there are uh, out there that you've maybe weren't aware of. Yeah, I mean, our membership is the highest it's ever been. Even through the, the pandemic, we were getting lots of new members coming through. And so, you know, despite the challenges of, um, of COVID and, 
and and all sorts of things like Brexit as well you know it's not putting off folk from wanting to start out in publishing which is great to see that that optimism and that desire to to um, look for the the work that's out there and to and to bring it to to readers all over the world it's great well that's uh, really heartening to hear and I think that's the perfect place uh, to round things off so Vicky thanks for taking time to have a chat with me today problem pleasure as always well I hope you enjoyed listening to this Scottish Publishers Showcase podcast as much as I did uh, recording it Many thanks to Edinburgh International Book Festival for asking us to take part. And a huge thanks to all our interviewees for taking the time to have a chat. If you enjoyed what you heard, then you might want to check out our other Scots Rehe podcasts, of which there are over 200, uh, many book related, and you will find them at scotswehe.com. Thank you.